0: From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all. Bela Lugosi as murder legendre. I see death. Master of the undead damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies. Yes, they are my servants. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror and now this fiend plots to possess a woman. a flower. Keep it, Monsieur. Keep it. You may change your mind. Not dead? Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed the certificate. I saw them bury her. Captive in the borderland between life and death her brain drained of the life-spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Zombie! Hale beat! Never eyes so evil. Never power so potent. Never magic so black. Bela Dracula Lugosi. As the master of the white zombie.
1: Out there, welcome to the latest episode of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. Today's episode is going to be a good one. Uh, we're going to travel into the uh, black and white magazine uh, uh, era of uh, Marvel Comics, and a uh, new guest and I are going to talk about Tales of the Zombie number one, and hopefully, some more down the road as well with these magazines. They're really, really good. They have great artwork in them, and of course, it's the Bronze Age, so you know, you get a lot of pros in there as well. Uh, which is something I unabashedly love, even when it's, you know, over the top. But again, even if you think that stuff's a little heavy, there's really great artwork in these, and uh, really, really, uh, you shouldn't overlook them. So uh, sit back and get ready for uh, my buddy Rob and I to talk about Tales of the Zombie. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. And as I've been trying to do from the get-go here is, number one, uh, cover some very seminal comics from this uh, era because, uh, you know, I don't feel they get enough love out there. And then I've also been trying my best to uh, talk to some new people, maybe people that aren't new to me but that I haven't podcasted with before. So I'm going to be talking about a really cool uh, black-and-white magazine from the Bronze Age uh, with a buddy of mine from Twitter here, and it's uh, Rob uh, from Twitter. How are you, man? Great. How are you doing today, Billy? Oh, I'm fantastic. And you and I have been friends on uh, Twitter for a long time. First time we're recording together, though. But you have one of uh, my favorite uh, Twitter handles out there. (laughs) Uh, Can you tell everybody what that Twitter handle is? Uh, It's called I
2: Have a Nerdy Mind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's a play on words, obviously, but uh, I guess it Mm -hmm. says it all.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I, we, you know, try to a lot of times tweet out a lot of the same stuff. I mean, you go really way deeper than I do usually. Like, I I stick to a lot of Bronze Age stuff, but you have some Golden and Silver Age stuff on there sometimes, too. Some really good stuff, and there's always, uh, you know, good info and awesome comics, too. Uh, and then plus, you do a lot of pop culture, too. I shouldn't just uh, pigeonhole you to comics there, too. You have a lot of pop culture stuff out there. Oh, yeah, I, I try to put a lot of
2: variety out there. Uh- Grew up mostly with Bronze Age stuff, 70s and 80s. And I started collecting the black and white Marvel horror stuff around uh, the 90s. I picked those up as back issues from my local comic
1: store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to be talking about one of the most seminal, you know, biggest named ones out there. We're going to be talking about Tales of the Zombie, number one. And this is one that, you know, I had known about for a very long time. But, you know, till prices kind of came down. And now they're going soaring back up uh, until they came down. I wasn't able to get my hands on these until just a few years ago. But, you know, wow, I completed the run, I think maybe two years ago. And oh, these magazines are just absolutely incredible. Even, you know, some people sour on black and white a little bit, but these are spectacular. The artists they chose for these are great. What do you think?
2: Oh, I, I love this period. And for me, the black and white art enhanced the uh, the book and a lot of the older reprints uh that were featured in them i I think it gave them more of like an eerie feel Mm
1: -hmm. yeah oh absolutely and then uh, you know i can't uh breeze over the uh painted covers a lot of them had oh how about those i mean this one in particular it's probably the biggest name uh boris vallejo what do you think of that
2: oh it was definitely a breathtaking cover by boris vallejo and um the interior artist on the new stories pablo marcos amazing artwork i loved his inking on the perez avengers run and he's an amazing artist in his own right
1: yeah he really is he can pencil ink he can do it all you know i've seen just uh stuff that he did that was just all him you know wholesale and it's fantastic and then like i said even inking he did some incredible inking and You know, one of the the best ones I'll totally agree with you is with George Perez there, too. That's uh, that's one of the best who, you know, as of this recording, it wasn't too terribly long ago. You know, we lost uh, George Perez, which was a tough one. You know, that was a real tough one to take. Yeah, that that Mm.
2: was very sad. I I think he died shortly after Neil Adams, if I recall.
1: Yeah, it was within a week or 10 days, I think. Terrible.
2: Yeah, two greats that we lost back to back. Yeah, that was a tough week there, but
1: uh, all right. So back to this one. So yeah, Boris Vallejo did the cover for this one, and it's an incredible cover. Uh, we have uh, the main character here, the zombie, Simon Garth. He's uh, standing on like a precipice, holding a scantily clad lady here by the uh, hand, <laughs> as a lot of these uh, yeah. <laughs> books did have back then. And, you know, the first time I saw this cover, I did not realize if you kind of focus on the background, there's like a graveyard in the background, which I didn't catch that first.
2: Absolutely, because there's a mist concealing the graveyard and you have to give it a second look.
1: Mm-hmm. And then we do get a little bit of exposition on the cover here. You know, it has Tales of the Zombie and, you know, bright lettering at the top, which is pretty cool. And then uh, he lives, he strikes, no grave can hold him. Night of the Walking Dead. You know, that's obviously about him. And then uh, it's funny too, you and I were uh, messaging the other day on Twitter and talking about the, some of the uh, similarities between. You know, this magazine and then obviously the Warren magazines that have been going on for years, you know, anthology style, black and white. And then, you know, one of the other uh, blurbs on the cover says photos, features. And there's a, a you know, a little bit of a nod to uh, like famous monsters in here as well, right?
2: Absolutely. Those little intros for each story uh, features like old B-movie or some more well-known uh, uh, basically, I guess you would call them uh, just clips of movies, where they would act as a host introducing each
1: story. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 absolutely. Yeah, this one uh, there's really there's literally like I think maybe five stories in this one, and then a couple. They're like there's a prose uh, piece in here by Tony Isabella talking about zombie films. You know, he goes through that, which is pretty cool too. And you get you know different. Uh, really good pictures from these films, you know, stills and, you know, there's universal and there's a hammer flick in there and everything. And that's a pretty cool thing too. So like we said, they're trying to hit, hit both markets here with uh, you know the horror and comics and then, you know, films as well.
2: Absolutely. Like you said, they, they took a page from famous monsters, the Warren magazine, where they uh, basically tried to appeal to the casual horror viewer as well.
1: Yeah, and then, of course, too, you know, it was, you know, the, the comics code itself was uh, loosening a little bit here in the early 70s, and it being a magazine as well, it wasn't even uh, under that umbrella. So they, you know, got a little edgier here with some of the artwork and stuff like that, too. And that's something that if you're not ready for, sometimes if you're just a casual comic book fan and you open up one of these, you're in for a little bit of a surprise. Oh, yes. Uh,
2: <laughs> I, I think that it's, it's it's definitely adult-oriented some of these stories
1: yeah for sure and this one uh came out i think the cover date was uh or the on sale date was uh, 1973 so the cover date maybe was late 1972 but yeah this is a really good one And this you know i think this one really started to kick off the horror craze for them in the magazines anyway um you know you had tomb of dracula was already out by now as a color comic but the more adult oriented magazines you know i think this is one of the earliest if not the earliest one for them and boy like we said boris vallejo cover and Uh, Some of the interiors here, you know, the artists and writers and stuff like that, they really threw, uh, you know, their kind of A-listers at this this magazine.
2: Oh, definitely. And uh, some of the reprints in here were really well done. And in black and white, as I said, it gives it a more eerie feel. It it just makes it just seem a darker tone.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not kidding. Absolutely. And. You know we're it's we're gonna you know run through this magazine and we're not gonna actually start with the first story. We're gonna you know jump to you know the middle of the book here, or more towards the middle of the book here, where they actually reprinted the first appearance of this character, uh, Simon Garth, which was uh, you know way from way way back. Um, I believe it was 1953 in Menace Number no. Five, and it was uh, Stanley and Bill Everett that had done this uh, story with this character, you know this zombie character, and. Um, so that's where we're going to start here. So, uh, let's take a peek at that one. And I know for sure, you know, they didn't really have any ideas that this character was, you know, ever going to live again <laughs> outside of yeah. that one story. It was probably more like a one-off, but it's somehow, you know, Roy Thomas and the crew here in the early seventies got it, uh, resurrected. Uh, pardon my pun there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of people probably know Bill Everett for being the creator of the Submariner, and uh, co-creator of Daredevil and this this was definitely like you said, probably meant to be as a one off but just just the fact that they were able to get a successful series out of this is amazing
1: yeah, and marvel too i I'll have to say here I don't want to not talk about this too. Marvel too, with some of these magazines, they were black and white magazines, but sometimes in a story here and there, they would have like one color added into the story, so in this uh reprint uh from that menace uh story you know you get some of the panels that have uh, some green in them which is uh you know kind of earthy you know with the black and white too maybe more swampy so that kind of i guess they thought would fit the mold here a little bit better it's it's definitely a distinct look you know in those panels
2: oh definitely and it, it's almost reminiscent of frankenstein the boris karloff movie because I heard that that was originally filmed in a green tint and Frankenstein's monster was an animated corpse. So uh, maybe they were trying to draw parallels between the Simon Garth and the monster.
1: Oh yeah. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. Cause there's obviously some uh, correlation there between the two, you know, two undeads, but uh, yeah, I didn't even think of that, but yeah, it's, they did this in a few of the magazines. Some of them were all just black and white and some of them, you know, you'd have a page where some of the panels had, you know, uh, uh, like I said, one color in them and that's all they had. And it's interesting. I think maybe Warren might have done this as well. So maybe they were kind of aping them. It's very
2: possible. And uh, that, that's one team up I would have loved to have seen, though, back in the day. Uh, since Marvel had the rights to publish uh, Frankenstein, was to do a crossover between the Frankenstein monster and the zombie.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that would have been neat. <laughs> that would have been really cool. But yeah, I like, <laughs> yeah, I really like, a, it's only a seven page story. um, And it's got like mm-hmm. a, a two, two thirds splash page here and it has the zombie standing in this swamp. And it says, uh, long weeks have passed. Simon Garth, since the night your life was taken from you. Weeks, time enough to learn what it means to be a zombie, a man without a soul. <laughs> so some good uh, Stanley hyperbole there. <laughs>
2: Definitely. Very, very awe-inspiring. And, um yeah, um Everett is is definitely uh, at his best here. I, I don't know if he was inking his own work here or who the inker was, but the artwork's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I think this is all, all Everett. You know, I think he did pencil and ink this himself, which, you know, like you said, he was an incredible artist, too. He could do any genre. He could pencil, he could ink, he could do everything. So it's. I think it's all him, which... Again, wouldn't surprise me because he was, you know, he was a top tier guy for a long time.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Very versatile,
1: legendary artist writer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, submariner, way back in the golden age, and he's still kicking around. You know, they're talking about him in some of these newer movies gonna be maybe and stuff like that. So yeah, he was he was one of the good ones, one of the big ones <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah. Okay here. So yeah, like I said, it's only a seven page story and it doesn't go super in depth. You just see, you know, a zombie kind of creeping around the swamp here and he comes to a, a shack here in the swamp and you know, he opens the door and it says and he pushed open the door and uh, to face the one who summoned you. And there's this, uh, uh, the guy almost looks like uh, I'm trying to think of who he looks like when I first saw this picture. I thought, gosh, he looks like somebody like I I can think of off the top of my head. But, uh, yeah, he's a big guy and he's sitting there and he tells him to sit down. And somehow you see he's controlling this zombie. And he says, I need money. Go into the town and steal some money for me, <laughs> which is kind of funny. And he he does. He, you know, kind of like you said, almost like the, the Frankenstein film. You know, he uh, goes into town to steal some money here because I know that one. The one Hammer film, I think it was the third film in that uh, franchise for Hammer, they had the the monster and uh, the one guy kind of had him hypnotized and was uh, using him to steal for him.
2: Oh, okay. I don't believe I've seen that one. I, I remember, I believe it was Terror of Frankenstein, the, the first one with- uh, Oh,
1: Curse. Yeah. In,
2: oh, Curse. That was it. Right. Curse of Frankenstein. The one with uh, Peter Cushing and um, Christopher Lee Chris- as the monster. Yeah.
1: Yep. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great stuff. But yeah, I think the third one. So this kind of reminded me of that, but it's not quite hypnotism here. And, you know, uh, our buddy uh, does go into the the town here, and I guess there's a uh, Mardi Gras, you know, party going on, and people are all dressed up. And I thought those panels were pretty good too, man. Everett, they look really neat, like all these people in costumes and stuff like that. That looks really cool. What do you think of the artwork there?
2: It's amazing, and I I like the part where the, the party goers see Simon Garth um, emerging into the crowd, and they're they're like, "That's how did you do that? The costume's unbelievable! You're gonna definitely get first prize." Thinking that it's a costume,
1: yeah, and I like too how you know on that same page, uh, right above those panels, there's you know the, the Mardi Gras partiers going crazy, and there's a, obviously a, one guy dressed as a cop, but he's just this goofball-looking guy. But in that panel where it says he'll win first prize, hands down we see another guy dressed as another cop. I'm like, okay, back then that was a, a popular uh, costume, I guess, but people are partying and going crazy. And there's one guy that kind of creeps down a, an alleyway here. I don't know what this guy's up to, but uh, our buddy, the zombie follows him down the alleyway and grabs him and he's going to rob him. But then a real cop shows up and blows his whistle and starts shooting at him. But of course he's a dead zombie. So that does absolutely nothing. And he goes back empty handed to his master and his master is a, uh, pretty awful human being. And he starts trying to whip him. And then he's like, oh, wait a minute. It's wasting my time whipping you. You don't feel anything. (laughs) That was pretty good.
2: Exactly. And then he threatens to get rid of him by, uh, I guess, dismembering the head, uh, decapitating the head on the devil doll that controlled him.
1: Yeah. And this is where things are going to be a little different between this original story and then the new material that's in here. Uh, that they did for the magazine, where it looks like there's, you know, like almost like a voodoo doll, you know, controlling him. And yeah, the guy pulls out a knife and says he's going to cut the head off. And he's like, "Wait, I have another job for you." So this uh, sleaze bag thinks, "Okay, well, there's a woman I like, but she doesn't like me." And I think to myself, uh, "Yeah, gee, I wonder why." Like, look at this guy; he, he looks <laughs> like a complete sleaze bag, and he lives out in a swamp in a shack. I'm thinking, uh, I wonder why, pal." But uh, exactly. yeah, he's. He's going to use the doll to uh, uh, grab her and bring her back here. And then he's going to, uh, you know, use the doll to control the zombie to kind of make it seem as if he's rescuing her. And then he thinks she'll just fall into my arms. And that plan doesn't really go as uh, as uh, he wants it to, does it?
2: <laughs> no, not at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, the, the zombie goes to this uh, girl's house, breaks down the door, and then this is something that I thought... I don't know if Lee and Everett weren't really on the same page here or what. At first, I'm thinking, why didn't he grab her? Because he smashes down this door. And when he looks at the girl, he just turns around, doesn't grab her, goes back and just grabs the guy by the throat before he can use the voodoo doll to manipulate him and kills the guy right there. So that's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. But I don't you don't realize until the very last panel of the story why he turned away from the girl. So that was a pretty good twist there. I did like that.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love that twist ending. And uh, it's just, just worth reading for that alone.
1: Yeah, the dialogue says, it's never as strong as the power of love. How could he have possibly have expected you to kidnap the girl who had been your own daughter? So I guess he broke down the door. And, you know, he's like a zombie, but I guess he still has some kind of, you know, feelings and you know brain going on there so he looked at her and he's like oh crap this idiot wants me to grab my own daughter so that kind of exactly. snap, yeah snap a little bit and then go back there and give like i'm not dealing with this guy anymore killed him but uh yeah the last three panels it does uh, show him going to his grave and he goes into his grave digs it up a bit and then just lays down in his grave and he's like you know you know tapping out here <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> and unfortunately I, I guess he's he's like in a state of semi-awareness because I think only the the user of the the doll could uh let him go back to eternal rest.
1: <laughs> yeah, you would think. And then okay, so like I said, you know, that differs a little bit here from where they go with uh you know, the first story here. It's uh called Altar of the Damned. And it's a, a prologue here and it opens up and we see, you know, a, a, again, a swamp and there's a little alligator in the background and you see uh, a bunch of people dancing around as if there's some kind of like ritual going on here. And uh, you know, I said how, Hey, it's the seventies and the magazines weren't uh, under the comics code. So <laughs> you basically have a bunch of naked yeah. people dancing around <laughs> now. It's not, it's not like, you know, it's, I think it's still done very tastefully, you know, they're like, you know, in shadow or this or that. So it's not, it's not, like, uh, done in bad taste, you know, right? You don't think so either? Right. No, no, not, oh. not at all.
2: It, it, it is tastefully, as you said, and it's not o- overtly sexual.
1: No, not at all. And uh, there's a main woman here while these uh, people are dancing around. She's dressed kind of like in, you know, like Gypsy or Romani kind of clothing, and she has this huge dagger, and then we see there's a guy uh, down on the... Uh, like an altar and she's, you know, raises her hand up and she's getting ready to stab him. And then you turn to that next page and it's the altar of the damned. And it's this huge splash page. And there's a woman with the raised knife and a guy, t- you know, tied up and gagged on this altar. And then there's a guy in the background too. And he kind of resembles the, the uh, slob from menace number five, that was controlling the zombie with the voodoo doll. And then uh, we get our credits there too. So, uh, Story by Steve Gerber, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, layouts, John Buscema. Finished art, Tom Palmer. And co-plotted by Roy Thomas. So uh, what do you think of this splash page here?
2: I think it's it's very chilling and very ominous. You you have the, the voodoo priestess getting ready to, to stab and sacrifice the hapless victim. And as you said, you have the disheveled guy from Menace in the background, gleefully uh, appreciating the mayhem.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're going to find out now with this, you know, updated story here. This, this story is kind of a prequel to that uh, Menace number five. So there's no zombie yet, but there's going to be one by the end of this story. And our buddy here on the altar, I think, is who ends up being Simon Garth, correct?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, they they flesh out his character more in here because Mm -hmm. you can see the the human side of him, what became the zombie.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's weird because, you know, the woman raises up the knife and starts plunging it, but as she does, uh, she cuts him loose and says, go, go at once before the others see what I've done. So she didn't want to murder this guy, and he does take off, and then we see the... uh, the guy from menace five, hey, you fool. If he escapes I'll. and you know, the guy takes off running and a couple of the, uh, the goons he has there grab the girl that was supposed to kill him, but didn't. And then they're sweeping around the swamp looking for him and he's, you know, trying to get away. And uh, then we have like a flashback to, uh, you know, was it earlier that day? Maybe. And uh, you know, he's just going to work as normal. It looks like, and she's the daughter comes in. She's like, Oh dad, here you forgot your briefcase. And, you know, uh, he's just kind of living a normal life, but he's tied up with this, uh, this guy, you know, this, this guy that eventually ends up controlling him. They see that they're kind of like tied together in uh, some kind of business deal or something like that.
2: Right. Uh, he th- the thing about Simon Gart's character is he he just doesn't come across as a likable character. He's this arrogant. Um, self-absorbed businessman he and he comes across as a tyrant towards everyone and tries to control everyone around him including his daughter and the, uh, the guy from Menace seems to be um, working for him he's his gardener and he mm-hmm. even treats him like crap and talks down to him
1: mm-hmm. yeah he calls him gyps <laughs> so I don't know that's kind yeah. of a crazy name there but yeah he does that, berate that the is. guy Yeah, he berates him because he's, you know, the the hedges look like they've been trimmed by a hungry goat. And like I said, he really starts getting (laughs) on him and being kind of nasty to him. So, yeah, he's not the nicest individual, but this guy's, uh, you know, not really uh, having it. So he uh, eventually has this little plan there after he kind of uh, lets on to the daughter that he's into voodoo and he's, you know, kind of a creep. And our buddy, you know, Simon, he goes uh, to a, a board meeting and he's pounding the table and screaming at everybody in this boardroom. I don't give a damn what anybody says. We have to step up production. So this guy's really not a nice guy. So the fact that he ends up being a zombie is, uh, you know, maybe it's a a good, good thing for him.
2: Yeah. It's, it's basically poetic justice in a way. Um, When he becomes the zombie, he almost seems to have more of of a conscience and, Maybe it's just because he's unaware of what's happening around him.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And then, you know, we see him being more of a jerk anyway. And then all of a sudden we see the gardener here and he's creeping around and he looks through the trees here at the (laughs) at the backyard where they have this incredible swimming pool. Because this guy seems, you know, Simon Garth's character seems to have a ton of money, whatever he's into. He's a, a very wealthy guy. And we see a diving board, and there's the daughter, and she's completely naked, having a little skinny dipping here in the backyard, and our creepy gardener's uh, ogling her. (laughs) But John Buscema and Tom Palmer, wow, great artwork.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, he's definitely getting an eyeful of the daughter, and then uh, daddy comes home and spoils the fun.
1: Yeah, punches him right in the face. Looks like he might knock a tooth out as well. And he says, "You're fired, scum. Get out now." And you know the guy's like, "I'll kill you." Or I'm sorry, he's like, "I swear, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. I'll kill you." And you know he runs off and he starts berating the daughter. And you know it's like, I, you know, hey, she's in her privacy of her backyard. Like, what are you yelling at her for? So what if she wanted to go skinny dipping? (laughs) You know what I mean? That's her. Yeah, that's her property. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. the, the creepy gardener, he comes back later that night and uh, waits for Simon to come out and get in his car, probably to go to a dinner party or something, I think it says, and smashes him upside the head with a bottle, ties him up and uh, gags him, and then you know, basically we pick up right at the scene where uh, we started the whole uh, story here, Altar of the Damned, where he was tied up on the altar and uh, getting ready to get the knife plunged into him. But then they do add a little bit of dialogue between the... Uh, Simon and the woman who uh, was going to kill him with a giant knife and she says uh, that you know uh, her name's Layla and she says uh, she loves him and she's like I don't want to take the life of the man I love and uh, you know we don't get too deep into her character because the next thing you know as he's trying to get away through the swamp uh, our buddy uh, stabs him right through the heart I guess and he kills him and the next thing you know they (laughs) they dig a hole and bury him in it so you know It looks like, okay, story over, but okay, how does he become the zombie? So then we get into that a little bit more here, and you know, uh, the the guy gyps, or whatever they want to call him, the gardener, he says, uh, I was cheated, that guy died too easy, I wanted him to suffer, and then uh, that's when he starts to get the idea, he's just like, wait a minute, you guys, you're gonna be my slave, Garth, you hear me, now that you're dead, you've just begun to suffer, and he yells over to the people, hey, you voodoo's, bring that freaking queen of yours here. (laughs) That's pretty. Yeah, wild. and he for he forces her to, you know, do a spell on him, like a voodoo spell, to raise his corpse.
2: Yeah, I guess uh, he wants to definitely uh, exert control of Garth, and he wants to prolong his uh, suffering.
1: Yeah, and he does. They do raise him from the dead, and there he is. You know, all like zombie looking and. Of course, he's just raised from the dead. So he just starts to go berserk and starts choking this one guy. But they put an amulet around his neck. And then they have like a special coin or a talisman, I think they call it. It has like a, I think it has like a serpent on it or something like that. And they basically say, as long as he has that, you know, necklace on and whoever the person is that holds that talisman, they will be able to control him. And, of course, our buddy here, the gardener, has it and he says to him, get into the swamp and I'll don't come out until I call you. And he goes, Hey, it works. Cause he trudges into the swamp and just stands there as if, you know, again, he has to obey whoever has that uh, talisman.
2: Exactly. And, and this ties into the story in menace. Uh, this is basically the prequel for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you know, that's how that picks up then. And this story then, you know, like you said, it, it goes (laughs) right into menace, but you know, at the end of the book, there's another one called night of the walking dead. And that's again, Steve Gerber, John Buscema, this time the finished arts by Sid shores. And you know, that one again, incredible, beautiful artwork that uh, opens up with, uh, you know, the gardener, he's dead on a table and, you know, we're kind of jumping into something that's already happened. So this night of The Walking Dead, and I was going to show us what happened to uh, put him on this uh, slab here in the coroner's office. And of course, you're thinking to yourself, you know, good riddance because he was a horrible individual, too. And there's a cop there and uh, the daughter is there as well. And she's just like, oh, that was our gardener. And, uh, you know, that we get back to uh, this news story. And, you know, the cop walks her out and then she uh, says about now how she has this talisman, right? You know, because so she's got it. So she can basically control the zombie who's her dad, which she doesn't know that at this point, though, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: yeah, and um, apparently she basically feels that this this zombie is is a mystery. She has no idea who he is or where he came from, and she... She probably doesn't even know the talisman can control him.
1: Yeah, no, she does say at one point, you know, she thinks that somehow oh. it's con- connected to her father. But again, she like, she has no <laughs> idea that he's the zombie or this can control him or anything like that at all. But she says, you know, there's a really good progression of panels. It's uh, in the magazine. It's page 62 where, you know, her and the cop mm-hmm. are having this conversation and she's holding it in her hand. And there's a really nice progression of six panels at the bottom where she's holding it. And she says, it's almost as if, he can hear me calling to come, calling me, calling him to come home. And then we see at uh, the swamp and it shows, you know, where Simon Garth is buried. And then she's looking at the coin or talisman again and it shows, uh, you know, where he's buried again. You can see like some, uh, right. some of the you know, rocks start to move around and she, you know, it zooms in on her face even more. And then we zoom in on the grave more and, you know, it goes to the next page and you see a hand coming out of there and he's uh, coming up out of the swamp. So I guess she's kind of, you know, you know, wishing her dad was, you know, still around or that's enough to use the talisman to get him to come out. And he comes out and there's just a hunter and a couple of dogs. And, well, they don't end up uh, too well because, you know, they run right into him. And it's not like he goes after them, but he does defend himself.
2: Exactly. Uh, He takes them and he just slams them to the ground and basically breaks their necks and backs, you would assume.
1: Yeah, and he, I shouldn't say he kills the hunter. He doesn't kill the hunter. He killed the poor two dogs, and then the hunter is just like, Hey, you dogs, come here. (laughs) It's just before I decide to shoot you. So he's threatening his dogs, but doesn't realize they're dead already. (laughs) And he comes upon their dead bodies, and he's just like, What? And then we switch back to, uh, you know, the daughter here. She's uh, running around, and she's just like, Gypsy's dead, and everywhere the specter of voodoo. What can it all mean? And, you know, she has no clue what's going on here, but. Some guy comes over and snatches her purse, and she starts yelling for the police, and the guy takes off, and you know there's a gun in her purse, and I guess she had the talisman in there, too. So now this creepy mugger, he's got her gun, and he has a talisman as well to control the zombie. Now, of course, he doesn't know how to use it or know what's going on there, but— He thinks, well, I have a gun, so I'm going to start robbing people using this gun. And he guns down two people in the street. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier that, you know, these magazines weren't governed by the comics code. So, you know, you could up the violence in these and show some gorier scenes and then, you know, have a little, uh, you know, some TNA or whatever you want to call it, some more suggestive stuff in them. And yeah, he guns these people down right in the street.
2: Yeah, um, definitely. And they also note that this mugger was a heroin addict and Mm -hmm. back in the day with the comics code you really couldn't talk about drugs and things of that nature
1: yeah and it's funny he just like wants to rob them and he grabs the guy's wallet and there's a a ton of cash in his wallet and then he says uh he's gonna grab the necklace off of the woman and you know he shot her but she didn't die so he kind of freaks out panics that oh no she's not dead and Who knows what he's going to do. And she kind of like grabs him by the face and starts scratching at his face. And he pulls the gun out and shoots her. But the talisman falls out and it's just laying there on the sidewalk. And the next thing you know, again, you know, the zombie kind of is attracted to that talisman, like kind of like wherever it is, he's going to go unless whoever has it tells him to do something else. It's kind of like almost like a homing beacon, maybe. And he walks right up to this mugger, you know, this junkie. And the junkie, of course, is like, what is this guy? And tries to stab him. And it does nothing because he's dead already. So the guy pulls out the gun and puts it in Simon Scarth's face. And he just grabs the guy by the wrist and completely twists the gun around and points it right in the guy's face. And then all of a sudden, blam! And it doesn't show it, but you see the gun go off. And then you see the mugger, you know, the junkie there laying on the ground, dead. And, you know, there's a, a shot of Simon Garth looks at the woman that was laying there shot dead as well. And, you know, it's just it's a really crazy, crazy, somber scene there. And he just walks off. Well,
2: yeah, you, you have carnage all around in just those three panels. Well, actually, it's, it's more like six panels uh, cut up. But, yeah, it's it's definitely very. Uh, very shock-provoking
0: yeah and
1: it's it's like you said it's violent this is not something you would have seen in a comic (laughs) of that era at all it's just (laughs) i almost feel sorry for the junkie a little bit but oh yeah he then i think yeah he just just killed two people for you know money for drugs so i guess he got what was coming to him so it almost seems like you know marvel's like yeah this this guy when he was alive was kind of a, a scumbag so we're gonna try to use him as this uh tool of uh retribution to right some wrongs out here in society, which, you know, is interesting. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about that, you know, now you're using this guy to do these things and he's almost like a, a a one man, uh, madam justice out here. He's, you know, if he thinks you're, it's your time, look out, you're done.
2: Well, yeah, it's, and it's interesting that you word it that way as, as an instrument of justice because it, it's kind of poetic justice because he was always used to being in control, Simon Garth, and now he ha- he's under the control of whoever has the talisman.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it is it is interesting. I mean, you know that in that point point there, he kills that you know uh, mugger junkie guy, and nobody has a talisman. So you wonder, does he just still have some, you know, coherent thoughts where? He's trying to make up, you know, some penance for how terrible he was when he was alive that he, you know, put this uh, this junkie down like it kind of they kind of leave it a little nebulous there for you to kind of draw your own conclusion in this first issue.
2: That's true. I always thought of his awareness being similar to like man things. Mm, Uh, Another Marvel monster who just is barely
1: sentient. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because you see Man-Thing, too. He doesn't really, he never, well, he never speaks, and neither does Simon Garth in these magazines, and he just always seems to kind of be able to sense right from wrong and, you know, help do the right thing, which is cool. I love, again, man another character I love, too, just like Simon Garth, so I do like that quite a bit. Okay, so yeah, so that's it for those, for the uh, Simon Garth, you know, stories in this one. But we did have a couple more stories that were pretty interesting. So why don't we move on to the uh, earlier story, which is called Iron yeah. Head. Okay.
2: So what did yeah, you think that, of that Yeah, that's one? the one. W- I enjoyed it. Uh, that was the one with uh, the diver who basically committed murder and went to a, I don't know if it was a uh, island and he tried to seek refuge there among the natives.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. So it starts out, you see this skeevy guy and he's like robbing graves and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And he says, shows that he, you know, Rob graves, you know, whatever he had to do to get by even commit murder. And at one point he says, He got a job as a deep-sea diver on a private yacht headed for the Pacific. And, you know, of course, he's probably trying to get away from, you know, the cops, you know, investigating and coming after him for murder and robbing Graves and all the other crazy stuff he did. So he's on this ship with these, you know, these rich guys that are like, hey, we know where there's some sunken treasure. So they hire this unscrupulous guy, and, you know, he goes down and gets them some treasure, but then they say, ah, well, you know, there's one or two more down there, and they really have, you know, more treasure or more... You know, treasure that's worth more than everything we've grabbed so far. So he thinks to himself, hey, I'm just going to go down there and grab it for myself and off this, you know, these rich guys on this yacht. So he jumps into this diving suit and plants a bunch of explosives on the boat, lights the fuse and jumps off. And yeah, he goes under the water and he's walking on the bottom of the ocean floor trying to get this treasure. And we see the uh, yacht explode and he grabs the treasure and just keeps on walking and he walks up onto an island and there's a bunch of, you know, natives there and they're like ready to kill him. And they're just like, oh, they think he's some kind of water god because he has this crazy diving suit on, you know, something maybe they had never seen before. But, you know, he realizes that if he takes this diving suit off, they're going to kill him because they said they uh they want to kill the white man. And he's just like, oh, crap. Now, what do I do? So I kind of like the justice that goes on here, too. What did you think? <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, I mean, they're obviously headhunters, and they're they, they, he knows that if he takes the helmet off, like you said, they're going to kill him when they realize he's not a god. And even though they, they try to feed him and uh, give him water and all these things, he can't take it because he can't take the helmet off. So he, he knows he's going to starve to death. They watch him constantly to make sure that he won't take the helmet off.
0: Yeah, and
1: it's hilarious, too. And he says about, I'd rather starve to death than be eaten alive. So he thinks they're they're going to eat him alive, too. But, you know, we they do figure out what his uh, scheme is. I guess they, uh, you know, kind of peeked inside the helmet there and saw that he's just some random dude. So they do cut his head off the final panel. It shows one of the natives with, like, an axe or a hatchet or something there. And uh, they cut his head off. And there's the body in there. And they're holding the head up. <laughs> a diving helmet.
2: Yeah, uh, it's, it's almost reminiscent of an EC comic.
1: Yeah, you know what? I didn't think of it, but that absolutely is more like an EC story with the, you know, the O. Henry ending there. That is absolutely, I didn't even put that together, but you're right on the money there. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, that was a fun one, and that was art uh, was Dick Ayers, and, you know, I couldn't find any kind of writing credits on that one anywhere online, but uh, Dick Ayers is a good artist. You know, when I think of Dick Ayers, I think of a lot of war comics. Cause I know he did some Sergeant Fury. That's usually what I think of when I hear the name Dick Ayers.
2: Right. And, um, he did. So I think he was a, a long time Kirby collaborator as well. I think he inked a lot of Kirby stuff back. In oh the yeah.
1: Age. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. He'd been around for a long time, even at this point, I think, I think he was like late golden or very early silver age when he got his start, but yeah, that's a good one. Now there's, one more like longer story and one more shorter one. And the, the one more longer story. This has one of my favorite splash pages ever uh, for a story. It's called the thing from the bog. And the story is by Marv Wolfman, more like the script I would think. And then art by, here we go, Pablo Marcos, who you said about, you know, at the beginning here, this splash right. page is incredible, oh. isn't it? Oh,
2: Oh, yeah. I was a longtime fan of Pablo Marcos. And uh, I remember he also worked for the uh, short-lived Skywall Publications. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of their work, The Heap and stuff like that. Great yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah, great stuff in there. I definitely want to talk about their stuff someday, too. But one thing about this story that um, I was totally unawares of and had to look up It says the plot is by Kit Pearson, and I had no idea who that was, but that was a lady that was a a pretty prolific writer um, and mostly wrote novels. The only comic book work she did that I could find was this story and then a story in Monsters Unleashed number three, and that, I think, was also written by Marv Wolfman, so I thought, oh, maybe Marv was a friend of hers or a fan of her writing, but when you look at her writing credits, I think the first one wasn't until 1986, the first novel she did, so I thought that was interesting.
2: But that is interesting. I'm I'm not familiar with the name.
1: Yeah, I had never heard of her either. But when I looked her up, like she had won a bunch of awards and stuff like that. I think she does mostly like fantasy, sci fi, young adult stuff. You know, she had done all that stuff. I don't think she's still writing. But yeah, I was just like, oh, that kind of caught me off guard when I saw like, Kit Pearson. I thought it almost sounded like, you know, a pseudonym. But, you know, wasn't anybody I knew. But when I looked it up, I thought, oh, well, hey, good for her. You know, because as we know, you know, there were sometimes women writing stories back then and. They ended up, you know, using a male pseudonym because they weren't as, you know, they they basically were like, oh, we don't want people to think a girl wrote this. So it was like, let's put a guy's name over it. Like, I think uh, that happened to uh, Steve Gerber's uh, collaborator, Mary Screens, a few times. Oh, OK.
2: I think they did that with Phantom Lady back in the 50s. Uh, Gregory Page was a uh, house writing name that they used.
1: Yeah, yep. Yep. I think so. Absolutely. But yeah, this one's interesting too. The thing from the bog. Um, it's kind of like another zombie story. You know, it opens up with this zombie out here and um, we see, you know, how uh, it's this over in uh, Denmark. So it's not even a, a, uh, uh, an American story, you know, based in America. So, you know, we see uh, this dude <laughs> kill another guy or I'm sorry, they're digging up a a grave and inside this grave is like, you know, is corpse and it's it's a bog man, a hellish bog man they say, and it's interesting. So on the uh, third page of the story, which is page forty-five of the magazine here, you know we see uh, how they say two years ago, you know they found him on the bogs, and there was a witch guardian, and man, Pablo Marcos, like it could literally be a very boring story, which it is not, but it could be, and his artwork is just so unbelievable in this story, like. You know, when you see this witch there and then the, the corpse laying there and, you know, oh, my gosh, the, another page where the, it's like this uh, the person getting killed and you see this like devil and these skulls and a snake. Oh, it's incredible.
2: Oh, definitely. And I, I love Pablo Marcos's work on Vampire Tales as well. I, I think he was one of the uh, main pencillers on the Morbius trip.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe Rich Buckler maybe started out, but then, yeah, he did a bunch of them. Yeah. You're absolutely right on the money there. Mm, man. Yeah. Just looking at these pages are just like, wow. Even like, and Pablo Marcos is one of those guys that even, it doesn't even have to be an action sequence or, you know, a monster doing something, even just, you know, more mundane, you know, dialogue scenes and stuff like that. You know, his figures are great. It's just, he was a complete artist. Definitely.
2: Um, I remember a Marvel 2 and 1 he did with Morbius and the thing that was awesome.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think I have that one. Oh, yeah, that's great stuff. But yeah, this is just this story is like really crazy and really out there. But like I said, again, even if the story is just bonkers, the actual artwork really carries this one. And I love the very final panel there on the the page uh, 52 where (laughs) we see this guy and he's uh, those two guys and they're getting killed and ripped apart. It looks like by a bunch of these zombies. And, oh, it's just incredible. I just oh, man, I could look at that story all day.
2: Definitely. Marcos is one of the greats.
1: Yep, for sure. And then we did have a quick little two pager and I saw some of these stories in a couple of Marvel magazines and then, of course, in Warren magazines. uh, one of my favorite uh, horror artists of all time, Tom Sutton. So what do you think of Tom Sutton?
2: I like Tom Sutton's artwork. Um, in fact, uh, he did some awesome covers for uh, Charlton horror comics.
1: Mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Love his stuff. Oh. Mm. Yeah, this one's called The Mastermind. And... <laughs> (laughs) It's basically like a Frankenstein monster kind of story with a funny ending to it as well. So this crazy, mad scientist guy, you know, creates this monster and it sits up and says, I live. And (laughs) he just, you know, starts talking to the monster and, you know, you're indestructible. You're going to be immortal. And, And he's like, am I not then superior to any man? And the scientist is like, you are and you shall humble the stupid masses before me. And he says. If I am truly all these things, then logic requires I ask you a one simple question. And the guy's like, Yes. And he goes, Who needs you, master? Like <laughs> he starts lunging at him like <laughs> he's going <laughs> to kill him. And that's great. Cause again, the artwork is incredible and it's a funny story, oh, too. Yeah. So I love that one, too. What did you think of that one? Is it a good one?
2: I did like it. Um, Sutton had an almost cartoony style, but it was well-suited for this story because there are some humorous elements in it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting. Like you mentioned, Charlton, his artwork, it kind of resembles that a little bit. But I feel like he got a little more, I don't know if the word's abstract when he did his Charlton stuff than he was with like, you know, Marvel, because you know, he did, you know, work then now and then for Marvel. Not a ton, but a good bit. And his was it seemed like it was more of a and they probably asked it to be more of a house style than you know what he truly wanted to do, which was more, like I said, maybe a little more abstract. I'm not sure how you would describe it, but almost a little bit more like Bill Sinkevich kind of artwork, you know, later in his career. What do you think? I I agree. Um, and I think the fact that it
2: was on a cover, they definitely wanted to draw the readers in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. So another thing I wanted to mention too about this magazine, there were some really, really good ads in this magazine and most of them were for other Marvel ads or I'm sorry, other Marvel horror magazines or comics or whatever, but there were some really good ones in here. Um, Like page 18, we get a full page ad for Morbius, especially in vampire tales. And I think that actually might be Pablo Marcos artwork there where it shows Morbius with the uh, moon behind him. And, you know, it says, beware of the vampires and move over Dracula, make way for the man called Morbius. And of course it's all this, you know, hyperbole here, which is great. I love it. I eat it up, but great stuff there. I love that. ad there too.
2: And uh, I don't know if that was before um, I'm trying to see here, if that, that might've been before they introduced uh, Satana to the book because that that was a, a great feature in Vampire Tales as
1: well. Oh yeah yeah absolutely And then she was in a couple of the magazines as well. I can't remember which one specifically but there was like almost a story of hers in each of the one magazine like maybe like a five issue you know run only it had but oh some incredible artwork in there too I think you know I think it's been mentioned before by quite a few people but I think I do agree that black and white art, especially for horror and horror anthology, works really really well
2: oh definitely um it i like the the color features as well but the the black and white just has a certain ambience to it
1: yeah it just feels a little more natural a little more primal It just i don't know just it, it works for me for sure but Page 53, another good ad there. It's right after the thing from the Bog story. Uh, We have like a a third of a page ad for uh, Dracula Lives, which was another black and white magazine Marvel put out. Uh, Really cool uh, artwork there with Dracula, and there's a bat and the moon behind him, and that's a good one too. And then right after the Mastermind story by Sutton, there's, you know, here we go again. It says, back issues anyone, and it says, Monster Madness? which I've never even heard of that magazine. And I have a crap load of magazines, you know, from Marvel. <laughs> I've never heard of that one. Have you ever seen that one before? I've seen ads. I've never
2: owned any, but yeah, apparently that's like, uh, I think they called it like, um, they, they call it for fami- me, or something like that in Italy, where it's photographs with captions and it, it was a total, uh, Humor mag, but uh, it, from what okay. I've seen of it, it looked like a lot of fun,
1: yeah. And then the other part of that ad is for Dracula Lives as well. And then actually, on the next page is my favorite comic book advertisement ever on page 57 there. Uh, the insult that made a man out of Mac, the Charles Atlas. <laughs> 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 That's the craziest ad ever. I always laugh every time I see it. Oh, I've yeah. seen it a million times, and I laugh every time. <laughs> oh man, but man, you flipped the page. And then we have a two page spread of ads for Marvel horror books and, you know, fantasy books. So you got werewolf by night monster on the prowl Conan and uh, creatures on the loose featuring Thongor on the one page. And then uh, on the very next page is tomb of Dracula ghost Rider, And it shows the Hulk with one of his issues of, uh, you know, a monster he's fighting and then call the conqueror with a werewolf on the cover there too. So again, incredible ad, uh, and again, they were obviously really trying to push these if they were going to have a two-page ad showing, you know, all their stuff. They really wanted to sell them.
2: Absolutely. And by having the Hulk in there, who is not who is a monster but not traditionally a horror character, um, you could tell they were trying to incorporate him into the horror line.
1: hmm Yeah, and then on the very, you know— Next to last page there. It's next issue. Once more, he rises from the grave, the man without a soul and says, don't miss voodoo Island. And we're going to tales from the zombie number two. And (laughs) it says on sale, June 5th, wherever voodoo dolls are sold. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. Good stuff. But yeah. So overall, this is one, you know, uh, whether you buy the magazine or if there's a collection or digital, whatever, This is uh, this is something, you know, if you're a horror fan, especially of Bronze Age horror, this is something you got to have, you know, one way or the other. You got to find this uh, this magazine out there. I mean, like I said, it's the the back issue market is pretty high right now. It'll eventually come down, but uh, you you, you need to get this. I know there was an essential put out of uh, Tales of the Zombie and. I think it might be in their uh, omnibus that they put out a couple of years ago as well. It's probably out of print by now, so the price will be through the roof. But if you can find it, I would definitely get it.
2: Oh, yeah. And the great thing about the essential Tales from the Zombie is if you're a fan of color comics and you don't like the essential books because it's in black and white, this is something that was originally in black and white and won't lose any of the, the appeal hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because I know some people, if they've seen the color, you know, and they have some singles in a color and then they get a collection that's black and white, they're kind of let down about it. But this, you know, this is the way it was meant to be. So it's not like you're going to really going to lose anything. And I think they did a great job choosing artists that, you know, uh, I think their artwork uh, is very much, you know, in tune with black and white, because I think there are some artists that, you know, they, they, the color benefits them. And I think uh, Marvel did a great job here with these artists in this one. It's th- th- their artwork stands out even more in black and white.
2: Oh, absolutely. Especially Busema, who's worked on Savage Sword of Conan, a black and white magazine from Marvel, for several years.
1: Yeah, his work on there is spectacular. If nobody's ever seen that, you need to get those. They have collections of that out too that are just unbelievable. But all right, man. Well, that's going to wrap this episode up. So. Um, I want to thank you for being on, and if anybody's looking to find you out there on the interwebs, where can they look for you?
2: Uh, Well, I'm on Twitter every day, uh, posting new stuff under my uh, handle, I Have a Nerdy Mind. And uh, thank you for having
1: me on, Billy. I appreciate the experience Yeah, this was great, man. So, yeah, everybody get out there and uh, look for Rob uh, on uh, Twitter because, like I said, you get a ton of comics out there, but you get a you know a good uh, dose of uh, pop culture in general with you know some films and music and stuff like that too, which is fantastic. So, uh, get out there and uh, follow Rob on Twitter. So, all right, man. Well, thank you again, and then I will be back in a second here to wrap things up. that's it for this episode. Uh, I want to thank Rob for being on the show. A uh, Real good guy, good guest, and definitely give him a follow on Twitter. Really fun account where, you know, he talks about a lot of comics, you know, but ranging from the golden age all the way up to, you know, more current stuff as well. And then he also does a lot of just pop culture in general, you know, a lot of music and film stuff too. So definitely give him a follow. And, you know, again, I want to thank him for being on the show and just a quick uh, heads up, you know, uh, August has been uh, deemed Jack Kirby month, you know, hashtag Jack Kirby uh, month on, uh, on Twitter. So definitely look for that hashtag and I'm going to be uh, starting off the month uh, with one of Jack Kirby's uh, crazy horror stories. And a uh, really good guest coming on to talk with me about that, uh, you know, a friend of mine and a-, a guy that's been a guest on one of my other shows too in the past. So really looking forward to that. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks, everybody, for listening.